Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'd like to begin this podcast by recognizing the traditional owners of the land in which it is recorded. I pay respect to their elders past, present, and those emerging. Uh, all right, so I'll, I'll kick off the podcast. I try and do it in the most natural way possible by kind of telling people that it's the most natural <laughs> way to start a podcast. <laughs> Will, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. I, I read your book and I loved your book. Uh, this is the reason I got you on the podcast is basically to talk about you because, you know, I've been fascinated by you and I like to start the podcast by asking a question that I always say is simple, but it's absolutely not a simple, yeah. <laughs> a simple thing. It is, do you think that nature or nurture has had the most influence on you? I think nurture. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I'm a product of how I was brought up, who I was brought up by. Yeah. Um, other than a small hiccup, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, what was your definitely. childhood like? Um, my parents got divorced when I was almost seven, okay. six and a bit. Yep. Um, Where'd you grow up? In, in Melbourne, in the outer eastern suburbs in Melbourne. Yep. Um, and we stayed with my dad, which was really unusual at that time. Like yeah, sure. Mum and dad had to go to court to explain to the judge why we were staying with the father and not the mother. Yep. Um, we, we saw mum very regularly. We saw her every second weekend, like most kids did at, you know, at that time. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel like I came from a broken home. Yeah, you sure. Know, like I feel like I came from a different home, but I don't yeah. feel like I came from a broken home. You know, my mum was very active in my life. Mm. I was one of those kids that didn't – I was divorced – my parents were divorced and I couldn't play them off against each other. Like if <laughs> yeah, dad said sure. no, I couldn't ask mum because he'd tell mum that he'd said no. Yeah, That doesn't yeah. seem fair. Like <laughs> my, my parents are still together, but it is it is interesting, isn't it, how sometimes people weaponise one thing against the other and, and yeah. talk about that. Like, but you didn't have any of that. It was kind of a, No, that's, one, that's the one benefit of having divorced parents, right? Like yeah, sure, yeah. Two Christmases and you get what you want. It yeah. didn't happen for me. Um, and, and look, Dad Dad brought us up in the church, um, just in the Uniting Church. Yep. Um, and he still has a very strong faith. Yep. It, it informs everything that he does. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's been hugely influential in my life and the way he lives his life is the way I aspire to. Yep, yep. Um, well, do you have any advice that he kind of gave you early on? Was there anything that you took from being raised religious? Um, oh, look... <laughs> There's a lot, actually. I'd, I'd So um, every year we had this massive Sunday school at yep. my church. It was almost 300 kids and it's at its peak. It was wow, okay. Big. Yeah. And my dad and his best friend would write a musical every year for our um, Sunday school to perform. So it wasn't just like the Christmas story, you know. Like yeah. one year we followed the story of Peter the Apostle and one year we did the Gospel of Mark. And, yeah, and, wow. But they'd write songs. Yeah. And... and um, I, now I work as a funeral director now and I'm often in places where we have, you know, religious readings and those sort of things. Mm. And they always come back to me as the songs. And I feel like like a lot of the lessons that I got from the upbringing is because of the music, not so much because of, you know, a man standing at the front of the church telling a story. Music hits you in a different way. Yeah, sure. So that, you know, the 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 um, Corinthians, the love is patient, love is kind, the one you hear at every wedding. Yep. Um, my dad and his mate wrote a song about that. And so if I hear that, I hear the music in my head, not the... And wow, so I yeah. think that's how a lot of those lessons come back to me is, yeah. you know, be patient, be kind, and it's because it's in the tune. Yeah. Are, you, are you a religious person now? No, no, no not at all. Yeah. Yep. Well, being in the funeral uh, business, I was about to say in the funeral mm. game, but, but working yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the funeral business, how how is that not being a religious person? Does that make any difference at all to, to the people you deal with? I, I don't feel like it does. I think, like, you can't take on people's beliefs in the same way of as course. you can't take on their grief. Yep. So, you know, not being religious means that I can sort of stand back and accept without judgment any of the things that... Um, that people want to have at their funerals, yep. you know. Um, I, I, I like to say I used to work in insurance and you, you say no a lot in insurance and you say yes a lot in funerals. Right, you know, okay. Because, because most people have, 
it, it, it's a similar sort of world when most people have never experienced a traumatic event like a claim, like a fire or a flood or something. And sure. I, was, I was a building assessor. And you'd go to the house and you go, no, you're not covered for that. Look, I'm sorry, you're not covered for that. No, you're only covered for this much. Or, But f- with a funeral, it's the same. People have no idea what questions to ask and what they want to do. And yeah. then they'll say to us, oh, would it be all right if we played Dad's, like, the, the Western Bulldogs theme song? Yes. D- does he have to wear socks? Not if you don't want him to. You know, and you're just saying yes a lot. You're just yeah. giving people permission to do what they need to do and it's a very – it makes it – much more worthwhile. And I, I don't know, I think sometimes if I had a very strong faith in one particular direction, yep. um, then that might get in the way. Like I joke, yeah, with, sure. I, I joke with my dad that I only believe in one less God than him because <laughs> he believes in a Christian God. Yeah. And, and I just don't believe in him or any of the others. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I used to love people when they used to say, you know, they have the same amount of, when Leonardo DiCaprio didn't have an Oscar, I remember people always saying, I had the same amount of Oscars as Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> that's actually that's a great perspective to think about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was what was your perception before you went into to be in the funeral uh, business and before and after? Did it, it's, was it different? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why I applied to work in this industry was I thought I'd always have a job. You know? Yeah, sure. I, yeah. I had I had, had a really rough patch in, in my life. I needed to find a new career. I needed to find a new start. I looked around it. I had some customer service skills, you know, like like a lot of people and went, where, where could I apply this? Yeah. Where it's going to be stable. Mm-hmm. Or there's always going to be work. And maybe I can build a career. Yeah, funerals would be good. Not with any passion. And a lot yep. of people you talk to in our industry go into it with passion of course yeah but now i'm the worst i'm, I'm so passionate about yeah. it like, i feel like i've found the thing that i was meant to do i was meant wow to, you know i feel like i was meant to be of service to people and i feel like finding this job has helped me find an understanding of what i'm being put on this earth to do wow yeah and it i i I couldn't. I can't see myself doing anything else. I I work in in the management part of the business now, but um, so I don't meet with families as much. But I'm still very engaged with, you know, like I get shit out of people's way so they can do their job. Yeah, sure. And, and so I'm still sort of making the path easier for the families that come to us. I yeah, I'm completely enamoured with it now. But it's a world that you just it, it it's very unique in in the way. Yeah. That you, you don't think about all the cogs in the wheel that are behind the scenes that have to happen. Yeah. Sure, it's a day-to-day job. Yeah, And yeah. you just have to get a lot done. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. <laughs> it's like any job. It's yeah, like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, now when you tell people that you do that with your family and everything, you know, is it was it a shock to them that you that you ended up ended up here? My mum, my dad and my sister weren't at all surprised yep. that, that they said, oh, yeah, dad, dad said to me, oh, that's a good fit. Straight wow. away. He said, that'll be a good fit for you. Yeah. yeah you'll find your feet there. Yeah. Um, and and what I find is if you know if you're at a party or a barbecue or something, people will either lean all the way in mm. when you tell them, or they'll lean all the way back. Sure. Yeah, yeah. What do you do? I'm a funeral director, and like I, that, I always introduce myself like that, no yeah. matter what role I've had in the business. I just say I'm a funeral director. So people either lean in because they're fascinated, or they don't want to know because it's about death. And sure, you know, death might be catching. So you don't want to. <laughs> it's good to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Have you? Has your, I guess, view on on death changed in any way? Like dealing with this, is have you started thinking about things in a different way? Um, I, I'm, I, th- I think probably with maturity. Like I couldn't have done this job in my twenties. Sure, I think I needed to be in my forties to be mature yeah. enough to do it. Like the things that I've learned really is that um, death is about the living. Yeah, it's it's not about the person that the person that's died. It's easy for them. Um, and and for us as funeral directors, it's easy. If that's the easy part for us, taking care of the deceased person, the, yep. the part that takes skill, yeah, is, is taking care of the living people. Um, and and it's taught me a lot about um, honesty and integrity in relationships. Yeah, you know, sure. That, that if because it's really important because we're dealing with people who are really vulnerable. You have to have that that integrity of I, I behave the way I behave with them when I'm not with them, and when no one's looking, I. I, I behave the same way, but it's that seeps it has seeped into my life and the way I treat people as well. Yeah, wow. Mm. When we were talking before, you know, your childhood. What what were you like as a kid? Do you kind of a friend of mine said the other day when, you know, when they met my mum and my dad, I kind of made sense. Do you do you <laughs> think that you are in equal parts your mum and your dad? Do you get qualities from from both of them? 
Yes, I think I do. Um, I, I, yeah, and then I think there's a few bits that are just me. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My, my dad is um, probably one of the most profound influences that I've had in my life, I think. Yeah, wow. He's, he's an incredibly um, – he gets a pretty good run in my story. Yeah, um, yeah. He's, but he he's just an inc- this incredibly gracious man who loves by doing. Yep. Um, always is very honest. Um, is it does things with grace? Like that's a big thing that he taught me. That if you're going to do something, yep, you do it with grace and you do it with joy. Right? Yeah, sure. I was listening to a, a um, podcast the other day. I think it was the Imperfects. They were talking about JOMO, the joy of missing out. Yeah, sure. And they were framing it like that. They said, you know. Once you accept that you can't do everything in your life that you want to, then take joy in the choice that you make. So if the choice that you make is to take care of yourself and sit and watch a whole season of something on the TV on a Sunday afternoon, take joy in it. Yeah, yeah. You're going to miss out on doing other stuff because you chose to do that. Yeah. Take joy in it. And I realised that's something that my dad's always done and always tried to teach me. Yeah. From cleaning the house on a Saturday before you're allowed to go and play with your mates to um, he, he spent many years at his school, he was a teacher, going to school and making breakfast for the kids who weren't um, privileged enough to have a good meal before they come to, to school. He'd go to school at 7 o'clock in the morning, cook breakfast for 120 kids and, wow. then, and then do his work day and then come home and then take care of us. And you know, It's quite selfless was. in the way that he acted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He can also be quite stubborn. Sure, but, sure. <laughs> and I think I also get that from him. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he, he is, he's a very, very – I, I, I aspire to be – thought of like he is thought of yeah did did you kind of know what direction you wanted to head in in life when you were younger did you always have kind of a goal no not at all in fact we were were just my wife and I were chatting about this the other day she said if I could go back and start my life and do it again what would I do and I I said I'd be a motoring journalist really yeah yeah I just love cars I love everything about cars always have always have yeah I was one of those kids with a matchbox car collection and and would while away afternoons make make up stories and driving the cars and what was your favorite um (laughs) i so i'm gonna just nerd out on you for a second in the in the toy car world there's hot wheels and matchbox right yeah matchbox cars were the actual cars so you bought you got a Land Cruiser, or you got a Jeep FJ40, yeah. or you got it right. Yeah. And sedan, the, yeah. And the yeah. Hot Wheels ones were the crazy ones with the things in the blur and yeah. Just, yeah. The was, racing cars. Yeah, yeah, I was the real car kid. Right. So I and 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 I've the, the one that was my favourite. I've still got. It's a burgundy coloured um, 1957 Ford Thunderbird that's got sparkly burgundy paint and big black wheels on the back and smaller ones on the front. So it's sort of raked with the nose down and yeah. I just, and it had real rubber tires on a matchbox car. That was very cool. So. You still have it. I so still have, have it. The burgundy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you love cars and you think that would be, that's kind what of I would have done. Yeah. yeah right. but, but I didn't like, I was, by the time I got to my late teens, I was distracted by hospitality. Sure. Yeah. Started sort of working as a glass collector in a pub when I was 15 and a half. Yeah. And then by the time I was 19 I was, or 18, 19, I, went, I started off going to TAFE but got realised I could make more money just working in the bars and then yeah. I got into – I went through a period of experimenting with drugs and sure. that made a bit of a mess of me. I, I think I've got a bit of that sort of personality that if I find something I love, I get addicted to it. Yeah, sure. Um, and so then I had to sort of find my way out of that with the help of some friends and so by the time sort of all that happened, then I fell into a – um, daytime job because my my first wife was a school teacher and I was a bartender and it's it doesn't match. Yeah, sure. You'd see like each other for opposite. breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> ships in the night. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I I fell into this job in the insurance world and and you know that life just sort of happened. I didn't plan it. If I if if I could go back to that point in time and plan it, yeah. I think I'd plan it different, but then I'd be worried that I'm not wouldn't be where I am now as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you did you kind of like, I mean, you know, dreaming of being you're working in working in as a motor journalist. Mm. Did you did you kind of think at the time that that was not possible? Like, was that not a thing that would present itself? Did you think yeah. that kind of the way you went through life quite quickly, and then drugs, and then you know you know friendships and working in bars? Like, mm. do you think maybe that just time kind of escaped really quickly? Yeah, and I got married the year I turned 21. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. The first time. Um, and so I got married really young. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and so then you're on the, the treadmill of, of life. And, and you know, I, I sound a bit like a grandpa, but back when I was 15, 16, 
the internet wasn't a thing. You couldn't mm. you couldn't look at Seek and see how easy it was or how hard it was to get a cadetship or to, or, or what you even had to do to become a motoring journalist. Of know? course, yeah. What did you have to study? What did you have to do? What did you have to think about? You went to the school counsellor at the end of year 10 and the school counsellor said to you, you know, and what my school counsellor said to me was, um, you're either going to be a lawyer or a bartender because mm. you've got the brains to do both and the wit yeah. to do both. I'm like, oh, gosh, I, I ended up as a bartender, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> Did you like working in bars? I loved it. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 And um, there was a show just recently on Disney, I think, called The Bear. Right. And it, it, it hit me viscerally, like in the same way that Anthony Bourdain's book, the the um, kitchen confidential did, yeah that it just hit if if you've worked in that world it, it's such a true representation of that world and you go oh, I want to go back yeah yeah I want to do that again yeah yeah and then and then my fifty year old back I didn't check to ask whether I could swear it I think oh I you absolutely can once. yeah yeah I, then my fifty year old back says to me the fuck you do like <laughs> that's it's not happening You're onto my something? son yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> having having you know but I guess being a being a dad as well did that yep. did that have a great impact on you did you did things change for you yeah they did mm. um I wasn't I wasn't a parent that immediately fell in love with their child sure yeah or. I wasn't a parent whose language immediately changed to say how much they loved their child. There's no yeah. doubt I, I, I adored him from the moment he was born. But the other thing that happened to me was that the general sense of anxiety and depression and dread that I had lived with for my whole life, um, that when I was you know, 12 years old and I had a negative voice in my head telling me that I was worthless because of my upbringing, I thought was a demon and I had to pray it out. Yep. You know, when, when my son was born, I, I suddenly had this incredible debilitating anxiety where, you know, I'd, the, the one sensible thing I did was buy a mirror so that when I went into his bedroom four or five times a night to check that he was alive, I'd put the mirror under his nose because I, I was smart enough to know you don't wake up a kid that's sleeping, but I needed to know he was breathing. Yeah. You know. So you could see it, you know. You could actually see it fogging on the, on the, on the mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I went to um, my doctor one day just randomly for a flu shot or a checkup or something. And he's like, so how are you? I'm like, yeah, no, 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 I'm good, thanks. He's like, okay, good. How's everything at home? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the baby's new, so we're getting used to it. So, so how, how are you? And I'm like, oh, you asked me that. I'm, I'm pretty good, thanks. All right, no worries. And he asked me that. And he goes, so how are you? And then it all just came out. I feel like I'm a terrible parent. I already feel like I'm ruining this child. I can't stop thinking about it. I've got these metal bands of anxiety across my chest. Da, 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 da. And my doctor said, who, who we had only met, like when my wife was pregnant, um, so you know it was fairly new. He said to me, "I did my PhD on anxiety and depression in men." Wow! And I think we need to talk. And so we had this long talk, and I came out of there feeling broken, like that someone had cracked me open and like uh, finally understood what you're yeah, going. Yeah, and now what am I? Because yeah, because without this, um, without this negative voice in my head that I feel like I've had for my whole life, what's going to replace it? Mm. Could it be worse? Like, yeah. what's going to happen? Um, it's a horrible feeling as well. We're having panic attacks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dreadful stuff. So, th- so you know, that it came to a head because we had a child and because I was responsible for this other thing yep. in the world. And it's, I'm glad that it did because it set me on a path to much better understanding of, of that part of me and my mental health and what I have to do to deal with it and all of that sort of stuff. So because of him, I, my life changed in a in a positive way in that way. It also changed in a really positive way. The thing parents don't tell you is they, they'll tell you it's the highest highs you'll ever have. Absolutely true. It's also the worst. Sure. The yeah, worst. Yeah. Like I remember walking out of our house one morning and I, I he slipped on, this, on the stone on, on our front step. So I grabbed his arm to stop him from falling and hitting his head and I dislocated his elbow. And, and post the drama of that, my doctor said to me, you know, that happens to kids all the time. They just click in and out all the time. It's really common. Yeah. But you went, the first time you break your kid, <laughs> you know, like I'm like, he's out of warranty. Yeah. I take him back. <laughs> this is going to be terrible. Yeah. And, and like I'm trying to get him in the car and he's holding his hand. Really, it's really straight. His arm really straight and he's pale and he's like, yep. it's okay, daddy. You didn't mean it. I'm like, oh my gosh. So parents, they, they, they lie to you. They tell you that it's the greatest most amazing without yep. telling you it's the worst of the worst you know, yeah as yeah, well yeah. the highs and, and the lows. you get both like yeah let's be honest that's absolutely life, yeah, yeah. 
So, so moving on, and, and you're working and everything. So you're working full time. Mm-hmm. It must have been such a big change from working in baths as well, going yeah. straight to going straight to full time. Were, were you hating it? Were full-time you liking corporate it? world? Yeah. Um, I really liked the camaraderie of it. Yeah. Like, I, I started off working in. Um, I worked for a big car insurer. Um, and so I worked at one of their assessment centres, and that was great. It was with cars. Yeah, yeah. So the cars were coming in every day. And, yeah, great. You know, um, I remember my boss saying to me, you just connect with people about their cars, because it didn't matter to me. Like, if someone came in with a really a 1978 Corolla in really good condition, I'd be yep. as excited <laughs> as, you know, the guy that came in with the Ferrari. Um, and so I really – I loved that bit of it. And, um, the, the, and the 9 to 5 was fine. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't bad. Um, and – yeah, then things started to change at home. I guess that the my first marriage started to deteriorate, mm-hmm. um, and careful about how I say it because I, I don't think it was my first wife's fault. Um, but she ended up getting violent, and and a while after we separated, she remained friends with my sister, and she found that she had a, a tumor on one of her ovaries. Oh wow! And and one of the first things the doctor apparently said to her was, "I can't believe you didn't notice. You should. This was poisoning. You should have had such a fundamental shift in the way you behaved and who you were." Mm. But I'm surprised nobody noticed. And and I, I actually regret that looking back, like knowing that and thinking, why didn't we ask that question? Like why didn't yeah, one of us? Yeah. Why didn't one of us say, "Sweetheart, this is fundamentally not who you are. Why are you behaving this way? Like why are you hitting me? Why are you?" Why are you throwing hot cups of coffee at me? Because I haven't made it with enough milk. Why? Why, yeah, why yeah. is this all happening? But for me at the time, I just was ashamed that, and and again, there wasn't the the narrative that there is today. Like you couldn't just call one of your mates and say, "So anyway, my wife's bashing me." Yeah, yeah. Um, and she's really pretty good at it. She 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 hits a shin bone, or she'll hit somewhere where it doesn't bruise, and she stays away from my face. And yeah, you know, things are pretty good. But I'm not quite sure why it's happening. And you know, maybe we should talk about it. I was just ashamed. Yeah, and and it led to our divorce, um, and so yeah, that that so th- you know the normal life led to that led to that, and yep, and on we go, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, for you as well, like not being able to speak to someone, not mm. being, you know, you're dealing with anxiety. There was a lot going on, and you know, being a parent and everything as well. I mean, yeah, so I wasn't wasn't a parent then. Yeah, I was a parent with my second wife, but mm. yeah. Yeah. What I, did you do to, to help you feel better? To you know, what did you have coping mechanisms for that? Um, no, not really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this was my first wife. Like I, I we were married from oh, we got divorced when I was twenty eight. So we were married twenty one, twenty eight. Very young. Yeah. Um, we got married I, I, almost in a response to her dad dying in a mo- in a racing car accident. Yep. And and need, her needing protection, and you know, it sort of just happened, and unfortunately ended horrible, and. Um, no, I didn't have. I didn't. I didn't actually talk to um, any of my friends about that until, oh, until I'd been married to my second wife for at least two years. Yeah, sure. And then, and then we were, you know, the boys having a drink. I think we were away camping somewhere, and one of them said, "Why? Like, why did you guys break up?" And, and then I and I spat it out. And as I was spitting it out, everything in me was saying, "Do not say this. Like, don't tell your mates this. What are you doing?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it was just dead silence around the campfire and one of them came and put his arm around me. Another one went and got us all another drink and we talked about it and then we started talking about something else and it was fine. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a big thing I've learned. That's a big nurture thing I've learned over nature, which is, you know, that shame is such a dangerous dangerous emotion. Like, because the fear of what's going to happen is always worse than what actually happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this kind of gets into. I mean, I read your book about two years ago. I think mm-hmm. it was one of the lockdowns, maybe one of the big <laughs> one of them. I've lost count of all That's the lockdowns. Probably but. given what it's about, it's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. that you, you read it while you were locked down. Can you? <laughs> so, what what happened at work? Um, yeah, to, okay. to start this. Um, so, so, I was married to. I was in my second marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been working at, at this insurer for a number of years. Um, I worked there for th- just over thirteen years. Liking it at that time? Were you enjoying the work? I was jealous about some of the stuff that was happening at work. There yep. was w- there was a big expansion happening. We were also doing stuff overseas. We were doing we were one of the first big businesses to do offshore call centers. There was people training 
those people yep. in India how to work with our teams and stuff. And I got left out of all of that. Yeah, sure. And and I'm certain that they did it for the right reasons. I had a young child. Yeah. Um, my wife worked for the same company. Yep. But I, I was feeling a bit jealous and a bit angry about it. Yep. Um, we were living beyond our means, it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, you know, we were the Joneses in the Keeping Up with the Joneses. For yep. some, for, I'm sure we were for some people. Yeah. You know, we had a nice house in Templestowe. We had a beach house. We had jet skis. We had I, had, mm-hmm. I had two old cars. I had a motorbike, you know, like, and we were living beyond our means. And we nearly missed a mortgage payment. Um, and then, you know, there was credit card pressure and there was this and there was that. And then an awful thing happened, which was I was in charge of the debt recovery team for this insurer. And one of my jobs was if if somebody wrote a, a check to you, to him, and you'd moved house, so the check went to your old house, it'd come back to me, I'd cancel it, we'd wait for you to contact us and we'd send you the, the money to your new address, right? Yep. Or we'd write it off. So in the midst of all of this happening, a check landed on my desk Will Patterson, in my name. So random. Yeah, yeah, There was some guy that one of our customers had a car accident with with the same name as me. He didn't live at the address anymore. The check landed on my desk. Yeah. And and I did the I did the first stupid thing I did was I put it in my drawer. I didn't just cancel it. I didn't go, oh, that's coincidence. Boom. I, I looked at it and went, wow, that's a mortgage payment. And I put it in my drawer. And I left it there for... It was a bit of time, wasn't it, that you actually yeah, left and kept checking it? You yeah, it was looking, about yeah. three days. And... and I had that, um, like, it was all I could think about. Yeah. Like, there's an old Edgar Allan Poe story called The Telltale Heart where a guy murders uh, somebody and then hides him under the floorboards of his house and the police come to talk about it. And all he can hear is the heart of the man and it ends yeah. up driving him crazy and he pulls the floorboards up while the police are there. Um, I, I felt like that. Yeah, I felt like sure. this check was the heart. Beat. It was calling boom, boom, you. Boom, boom, was calling me. And so, I, I, yeah, it was about the third day I took it and banked it. And then... I, was yeah. it hard to do? Was it hard to bank that check or you just kind of walked in? And I just did. Was, I was numb. Yeah, and, yeah. Then, and then when I was driving home, I started to realise what I'd done and I was like, this is, I shouldn't do this. Yeah. I have to, I don't know how to get it back. I'm going to have to talk to my boss tomorrow. I'll tell him I did a stupid thing. As soon as it clears, I'll give them the money back. Yeah. You know, I'll probably be demoted, but they'll let me keep me on. Why yeah. did I do this? And then the next morning, nothing had changed at work. And then the next day, nothing had changed at work. And so I let it clear. And I paid my mortgage yep. that month. And then and then the real theft happened the yep. second time. Because the second time what I did was I created a claim and sent that guy a check. Yep. But knowing that knowing it would come, come back. back. Yep. And and then it and then it it just steamrolled over time. And it was about eighteen months. Um I can't remember how many transactions it is now because it was a few years ago. But um it was a little a bit under $300,000 by the time the forensic accountants pulled me into an office and said, we need to talk to you about some transactions. I'd stolen about $300,000 from my company. And and I was one of those guys who, you know, you'd watch 60 Minutes on a Sunday night and they'd have the school teacher that had embezzled the money, all this, and you'd go, like, I'd always say to whoever I was with, why would you write your life off for that much money? Yeah, it's not yeah. enough money, right? But I wrote my life off for three hundred grand, and for nothing. Mm. I, I, I didn't get 300 grand and buy a house that they couldn't touch because I was smart and put it in my wife's name. Yeah, I, I yep. didn't go and buy myself a Ferrari. I didn't go and I, I spent it on lifestyle and on stupid stuff and on yep. pointless stuff. And, you know, maybe one family holiday came out of all of that money. You know? Yeah. And, and then, um, you know, the 18 months and one day my boss said to me, I'll come down to my office. So I walked into his office and there was two people there that I didn't recognise who were forensic accountants. And they said, Will, we need to talk to you about some transactions that... And and by that time, I was so desperate for a way for it to stop. Yeah. My first feeling was relief. Yeah. Because the very first thought that went through my head was, oh my God, it can stop. Yeah. Thank goodness. Because I'd been lying to myself. I'd been lying to my family. I must have been a horrible person to be with. My mum and my sister had been asking me for at least a year, what is wrong with you? And I'd say nothing and they'd believe me. You know, I'd lie and they'd pretend to believe me. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and and the first thing I said to the accountants was, uh, whatever you think I've done, I probably did it. Yeah. And they sort of sat back in their chair a little bit and went, really? I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll admit everything. It's, you know, it, it can stop now. Yeah. I, I'll admit everything. Um, 
Yeah, and then the first thing they made me do, as I said, my, my, my second wife worked at the company. They made me ring her. They'd already interviewed her, which I didn't know, and they'd sent her home. And the last thing they'd said to her was, this is going to get awful. You need to go home and make preparations to protect you and your son from what's about to happen. Yep. And she was adamant that it wasn't me. I was not the guy at work. Of that, course, that would yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was the happy fat bloke that everybody had a laugh with and had a good time with and was loyal to the company and that wasn't me. So they made me put her on speaker, they made me call her and they made me tell her that I had done it. And and so in a room full of strangers I had to listen to my wife's heartbreak. Yeah. Was she the hardest person to tell? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was. Um, and And that, you know... Saying it like that makes me sound like the victim. I wasn't the victim. She was the victim. It was just, but it was still hit hard. Yeah, yeah. To, to listen to her world crumble. Mm. And, I, and I felt like at the time it was very cruel of them to make, but I know why they did it. Yeah, of They course. did it because they needed to hear her that not. we didn't have a secret word and she wasn't in on it because she worked for the company, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I drove, I, and as we spoke we talked i think for about half an hour and we were getting to the end and i and then i started thinking hang on i've got to come in the car i'm in st kilda they've sent her home i can't ring her and ask her to come pick me up i have to ring my daddy <laughs> you know so i rang my dad and said something terrible's happened i need you to drop anything and of course he did mm. because that's the sort of man that he is yeah he got to work he got me in the car i told him from the drive from our work to home what had happened and he was just stoic just Dead silence, yep. you know, poker face. Asked me a couple of questions. We got home and, and my wife said to me, you've ruined our lives. I can't have you living in the house for a while. I don't know where you're going to go, but you can't stay here. And I was like, well, I don't know either. And my dad just looked over at me and said, you'll stay at my house. That's where you're safe. Yep. I'm like, okay. So, and again, because that's how he loves. Um, yeah, and that was the day that I threw a hand grenade into my life and... <laughs> How was the, I mean, leading up to it, you said you were, you know, the the funny one at work and you had great relationships with people. Mm. Did did that version of you change as you got more and more, like, I guess, further into it and, and feeling the anxiety of it all? Yeah, I think it did. And I think it um, put a, a, a put an idea of who I was in my head that I had to break. Yeah, sure. You know, as part of once I got caught and decided to change everything about the way I lived my life. Mm-hmm. Um which was, um, do you remember that old Warner Brothers cartoon, Spike and Chester, with the great big bulldog because yeah, it was British yeah. and the little dog that yapped around at his feet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was me. The right, Spike, okay. Spike was the big dog, Chester was the little dog. Yeah. You want to play ball, Spike? You want to play ball? You want to play ball? Nah. Nah, that's stupid, isn't it, Spike? Yeah, I wouldn't want to do that either. Ah, <laughs> shut up, that dog, yeah. right? I always felt like I was Chester. I was the imposter. Yeah, it was bouncing around everybody, going, "Look at me, look at me, like me, like me." Be, you, but, and 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 Chester became worse when, when I was hiding secrets. Yeah, sure. And and Chester still comes becomes out when I'm uncomfortable. I feel it. I, I see it coming. I feel it coming. I hear it coming. Out. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In my mouth and I go, wait a second. Yeah. What do you think that you're of an imposter in right now? Yeah. Let's. So it, it, it set that sort of tone in my head for, for a long time. Yeah. Um, from... Um, and and I won't pretend that our marriage was an enormously happy marriage before the the, the um, theft started, but the theft is what broke us up. Yeah, you yeah. Know, for for her, it was an unforgivable thing to have done. Yeah, um, you know the shame of not telling her once again. And my 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 um, closest friend um, and my biggest ally at the time, Dan, um, worked had worked for the company. He told me about two years ago that the computer program that caught me he wrote wow okay <laughs> right <laughs> um and he said they should have caught you a whole lot sooner they just obviously just weren't looking at, wow. the, at the program because they should have caught you a lot quicker than they did yeah um 
but I was I was very ashamed to tell him as well. But yeah, but either of those two people, had I've said something to my wife, had I've said something to him, they would have made me stop. And very very early on, had I've said something, we could have stopped and we could have dialed it back. And then when it got to habitual, then I, there was a period of time where I didn't want it to stop. So yeah, I didn't tell anyone. And in fact, I I was arrogant enough that I got angry at the company. Like if they didn't think that if they didn't leave this door open for me, I wouldn't be doing it. So it's yeah, their sure. fault. Yeah. It's their fault. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Yeah. Um, which I don't believe. <laughs> but I went through a period of that, and um, and so you know that it was a torturous eighteen months. When I look back on it, I must have been a horrible person to be around. You um, you said as well. Like after I remember you talking about uh different coping mechanisms for how you felt because you know you say at first it was a relief mm-hmm. but then what happened at, you know when you're staying at your um at your dad's house after that oh i'm self-medicated yeah yeah <laughs> with port yeah uh, port's such an interesting choice of, of drink to where have you ever been a port drinker before not really no, no yeah no but i you know like i want I, I felt like i wanted something sweet yeah sure i think that's what it was i think yep. it was sugar um and I don't know if there's anything physiological in that, that if you've constantly got a level of adrenaline and stress that you need crave the sugar to keep you. But, but I didn't, when the first, the first time I went to the bottle shop, I didn't want bourbon because I had to mix it with Coke. I didn't want beer because it was too fizzy. Yeah. And I went, port, that's sweet, that's easy to drink. Yeah, and, yeah. And it became very, very easy to drink. Um, yeah, and so I would just I'd shut myself off from everybody Yeah, and, and drink until I thought I was drunk enough that I could sleep and the ta- yeah. tablets that I take for my anxiety would work and I could knock myself out for a reasonable period of time and wake up the next day and survive yeah. survive the next day. And it was, a, it was a long time in between that you found out about the yeah. sentence as well because that must have been a really hard time when you were kind of yeah, I nervous got, about that. I got fired in the um, September. Yeah. My first court date was February and then I got sentenced in May. Yeah. So the February to the September to February was really tricky. Um, what what actually saved me from well, there was two things that saved me from just becoming an alcoholic port drinker forever. Um, one of them was work. Yep. You know, my dad said to me, "You're not staying here and not working. You yeah. got to get a job." So I worked with him in his business for a little while, and then I got a job working at BCF. Actually, yeah, the, yeah, and it, that was brilliant. It was yeah. brilliant because it was a it was a no stress. I was a Christmas casual. Yep. I'd go in. I'd chat to people about camping. I'd yep. sell them stuff. I'd go. It was great. But just having a reason to to number one get up in the morning and go to work, and number two, you need to be sober enough. Yeah, of course. So you can't write yourself off every night because you've got to get up tomorrow and go to work. Yeah. So it changes your whole aspect. But then the other thing was my my um, my step mum, who I call Omar because that's you know, that's she's Dutch, yep. Germ, 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 Dutch grandma Omar. Um, Omar came to me one day and said, I can count. Just randomly, I'm sitting in the, in the lounge room. I can count. I'm like, okay. She always So can I. No one's bragging about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah, I can count. I can count to 100. Um, she, at, she'd always would just start conversations. And she still, still does. She just starts conversations like mm. that. You know, like, well, because Christmas is hard and you've got to catch up. <laughs> sure, yeah. I can count. And I said, Okay. And she said, and I put the bins out. I'm like, okay. She said, so there's no point you drinking the port that you're drinking and hiding the bottles in the bin because I put the bins out and I see them. And I know you've got a problem and you know you've got a problem. So now we both know. And when you're ready to talk about it, you come to me. Right? And that was huge because that was the, the, the thing that I have, the thing I've appreciated about my life from the moment I said, yes, I stole this money is I've been given kindness and opportunity at many, many, many times when I didn't deserve it. And that was one of them. You know, that was kindness. That wasn't her coming into the room going, you're fucking drinking too much and you're yeah, alcoholic. Yeah. And no, she just said, here is the space for you to talk about it when you're ready. And, yeah. it, and it was, you know, that's a, there's a lot of grace in a lot of kindness in that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't want to talk all about the experience that you talk about in the book because it is yeah. a great book and I think people should read the book because yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Uh, but you did, so you were sentenced in the end and I thought we could talk about this before we get on to the questions that I, yeah, you know, that yeah, I usually sure. ask guests. But the actual the actual sentence, yeah. so how far? So you, you say that the time in between was, was quite big and you were doing things in that, yeah. in that time. 
when the sentence was read out, how mm-hmm. did how did you feel? So the sentence was, um, I, I was sentenced to three years. Yep. For embezzlement, essentially, it's not called embezzlement; it's a much longer term than that. But three years. But because I didn't, I didn't, I was clean skin. I'd never had any priors. Um, I was sentenced to a nine month custodial sentence, and the rest of it was suspended. So the day I was sentenced was immediate incarceration. So that means you go out the door that's behind the dock. Yeah, not not you're out not going the, back not, outside. You're not going back outside. Correct. Um, the the judge again did something very kind that I didn't deserve, which was she actually let me come out of the dock and say goodbye to my family, which they're not meant to do. Yeah, and they're not supposed to. So I did that, you know, like I hugged my sister, we looked at each other, we lied to each other and said it was going to be okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and and I went straight downstairs, so I went down, that's the old expression, right? Yeah. I went down and they take you downstairs, there's a there's a guard on either side of you, which I think for me was to make sure I didn't faint. Um, they, they make you take your shoes off if you've got laces in those shoes, they make you take your belt off, which for me was a Batman belt, which gave, made them laugh. <laughs> <laughs> And then they and then they lay you in a um, they put you in a room that's a cell with perspex walls, and they leave you in there for a while. And I sat in there. It was probably ten thirty in the morning. It was really early, and I realised I was utterly exhausted, probably from from the September to the May, not not just yeah, from the day. Yeah, yeah. And I lay down and went to sleep. I, I, and I slept, I think, for about an hour and a half. And and what I found out a while later was that cell is an observation cell to make sure you don't try and hurt yourself or you know. Yeah, get, get violent, but it's also the cell where the guards decide if you're innocent or guilty, and if you go to sleep, you're guilty because yep. the worst thing has happened to you, and so you're just getting yourself ready to accept what's next. Um, the people that are innocent are the ones that ran and rave, so yeah, they yeah. would have gone tick. He's guilty yeah. straight away, right? Um, and look, the prison experience. Did you know what it was going to be like? Did you have ideas in your head of what it was going to be like? I, I I did some useful research, like watched Orange Is the New Black. <laughs> Great research. Uh, yeah. yeah, didn't meet Jason Biggs. No, nah. <laughs> I had a, I, I I did have a good friend who was uh, who was a biker, and and um, we had a bit of a talk about some of the stuff that I should expect. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't take enough of his advice. Like, if I ever knew anyone who who um, was going in now, I'd say to them, you know, one, two, three, four, and one one thing would be put fifty bucks in your pocket because. When they check your pockets, they'll say, what do you want us to do with this? And you say, put half of it on my phone and half of it on my canteen and then you've got money straight away. Yeah, sure. Um, practical, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> he yeah. told me that. I forgot. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, so I hadn't done a lot of preparation. And, and look, the reality is for me, I am white, straight and male and I live in Australia. Yep. And I'd committed a white-collar crime. So my prison experience is not what you would call a hardcore prison experience. Yeah, sure. Right? I was at the Melbourne Assessment Prison in the city um, where everybody goes in Spencer, in Spencer Street. Then I was a short period of time at Port Phillip, which was terrifying. Um, that's our maximum security jail in Victoria. Um, and then for the majority of my sentence was at Beechworth, which is literally a farm. Yeah. So if you looked at it from Google Earth, it looks like a school camp. Like yeah, right. It's, okay. It's lodges with eight rooms, their cells, but eight rooms and a shared lounge room and a shared kitchen and shared bathrooms. And the front door of the lodge gets locked at night because you're in a jail, but the mm. rest of it, you, you're sort of free to roam. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it was awful because I was in jail and I didn't have certain privileges and there's people in there that need to remind you that you don't have those privileges and... It was a horrible experience, but when I think about, you know, my, my wife now, her family's from El Salvador, and if I think about what the prison experience is like, you know, the main, the main prison in El Salvador, the guards guard the perimeter of the prison to make sure they get out, but they don't work inside the jail. The gangs run the jail. Right, okay, sure. So, so you think about that jail experience, and I think, man, if any, of their, if any of her friends read the book, that I wrote, they'd be like, and that's jail? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He had yeah. his own room? Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> you know. So, Luxury. Yeah. <laughs> and look, a lot of that's probably with hindsight. You know, I, I came home in 2015. Mm. So, you know, there's a few, I've got a few years of being out under my belt now. Yeah. What was the first thing you wanted to do when you got out? Um, I wanted to see my son. Yep. That was the very first thing I wanted to do. He came and visited you in... in very the, regularly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah. His mum was actually pretty amazing with that. She came basically once a fortnight and, you know, put herself through some really uncomfortable hours sitting in a 
in a prison visiting centre so that I could play with my son for the day. Because a long trip to the yeah, to the facility, Melbourne, isn't it? Melbourne to Beechworth is yeah. about three and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's funny because he talks to me now about so he's he's he was eight or nine. No, it couldn't. He must have been a little bit older than that. He's seventeen now. Um, but he says to me it was some of the best times that I had with mum because it was just her and I and no wow. distractions and we'd we'd shoot, we'd play with each other's playlists and we'd laugh. Yeah, um, it's he's got nice and <laughs> after about the third visit. I'd, I'd talk to him every night on the phone. Are you coming up this weekend, mate? He goes, yeah, I think I am. Is Zach going to be there? Now, Zach was the kid of another prisoner. Yeah. And he and this Zach and another couple of other kids for, had made this little friendship group. Yeah. Because right? well, kids assimilate really quickly. Of course, yeah. So I had to talk to Zach's dad mm. and say, listen, Zach and Josh are mates. We need, we're actually going to need to coordinate our visits so that yeah. they come at the same time. So I would never have talked to Zach's dad otherwise, but... It, it was to make it better for our kids. Yeah, yeah. We did that. So he, so I really wanted to do that. Um, I really wanted to go to the ocean. That yeah, was, that was one of the things I really, really wanted to do. And yeah. then I, and then I wanted to borrow. And then I wanted to go for a motorbike ride. Yeah, which I didn't have a motorbike. I had to borrow my mates. But yeah, that I really. That where did you? Where did you go? Where'd you ride? Just up then into the hills, up Mount Dandenong, outside of Melbourne. It's one of my. It's a ride that I've been doing ever since I've had a license since yeah. I was seventeen. And. Just is it a therapeutic experience to, to oh, be on your own? I call it wind therapy. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the motorbike. Because yeah. because you're on your own in a big world, but it's a very small space. Yeah. You know, your your world's actually really your helmet and, and yeah. your senses and everything. So coming out, even though I wasn't in for a long time and it wasn't a solitary or anything like that, it, yep. the world is big and there's a lot of people in it when you come home from prison because yeah. you're used to the same 200 faces and the same routine and nothing never different happens and it's not chaotic and it's yeah it, and in fact that look that people had when the pandemic first started that was the look i had when i came home from jail yeah you, you look at people sideways and you don't trust anyone and that you, you remember feeling that that the the whole way society worked just shifted a little bit and we didn't sure. trust each other all of a sudden when yep. the pandemic sort of really properly hit melbourne um that's how I felt when I first came home from jail. Like going to the going to the supermarket wasn't a pleasant experience for me because there was too many people around me and I didn't know who was behind me and why was that person looking at me? Oh, they weren't looking at me. They were looking at the chips behind me. And yeah, yeah. It was just too much to think about. Was it hard to get back into everyday life? It was hard to, yeah. It was hard to stop myself from isolating. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Did you did you still feel like? Did you feel ashamed? How were you feeling at that time? When, when I first came home, I was very determined to be honest yep. about, about what had happened and what I'd done. Um, and it, to the point where it, I lost several opportunities to get jobs because of it. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. hilarious experience happened where um, I went for a job at a Renault dealer and I got the job and we were sitting and he goes, look, before we, before we get the job, I've just got to give you an opportunity. Is there anything we haven't asked you or anything you need to tell us about? And I said, yeah, there is actually. I actually have been in jail for a white-collar crime. I haven't been home that long. No, 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 no. I'm still a decent bloke. Blah, 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 blah. And this guy just stopped dead and his face went like stone. And he said, why haven't you told me that? I said, well, I'm telling you now. Like yeah. You just said to me, is there anything that I haven't given you the opportunity to say that you want to say? That was the question now I'm answering. This yeah. is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> but you should have told me that. Oh, he goes, and he stood up and he walked out of his office, out of his dealership and was gone. And I'm sitting in his office and I sat there in his office for about 10 minutes and went, I don't reckon I'm going to get this job. <laughs> it's not looking good. I guess I'll go home. <laughs> wow. So I, I was quite determined, not to strangers, like I wouldn't come and meet you on the street and say, hey, Sam, I've just come home from jail. How yep. are you? Yeah. Um, but with, you know, and when I when I dipped my foot back into the dating world, I was very honest with the with the girls that I went and met that that, that was part of my story and, yep. you know, better that I tell you now. So, you know... It, if you're freaked out about it, it's an easy exit for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Do you th- did your perception change of prison, you know, with, with the people that you met in there? Because, you know, I, I meet you and we had a great chat on the phone the other day. And yep. I, I guess ideas kind of change in my head because I go, oh, they don't strike me as someone. I, I could meet anyone and mm-hmm. I wouldn't know yep. what they'd been through. It's like anything, anytime someone comes on this podcast and chats about what they've been through, you'd never know. Yeah. Did, did it surprise you, the people that you met? Yeah, there was the Beechworth was a very interesting prison because it's a transition prison. So mm. it is either for green skin idiots like me who deserve to be there but need to be safe, um, or people who have been in for a very long time 
and they're coming to the end of their sentence. Yeah. So so when you when you live at Beechworth, you work in the community. They they take you out and you do things. They start to teach you about what life's going to be like on the outside, that sort of thing. So there's this interesting mix of people like me that have never been to jail before. And there was a guy in our unit who had started his sentence at Pentridge. And Pentridge closed in the 80s, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah so he'd long been in time. jail for a long time. Um, one counter-murder, one counter-manslaughter it was. And when I asked him about that, I said, why is it one of each? He said, because I fucking missed the second one. <laughs> right. And so therefore it was an interesting mix of real prisoners, like people who felt like jail was just part of the cost of doing business. Sure. You know, there was a there was a guy in there with us who had got done for running drugs up the coast of Australia in his truck. Mm-hmm. He had he had something like false bottoms in his in his petrol tanks and stuff. And when they asked him if he was um changed, he'd 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 say, Yes, I've got a better design my truck now and he'd say to us like my wife is living in a house in brighton my kids have gone to private school this is just the cost of doing business yeah, i've been yeah. in prison for nine years it's just the cost of doing business yeah right? so it was a really interesting mix of people that you would look at and go they're never going to change yeah there's, there's no yeah. Re- no recidivism there um and people like me who were um the the, the five days i spent at port phillip was enough to make sure i was never going to do it again yeah sure yeah <laughs> um and and then I was while we were there. While I was there, at least three people went home and came back, right? Because they were institutionalised and they couldn't cope with life on the outside, and yeah, they needed the structure and the safety and the people, other people making their decisions for them. Yeah, sure. So it was fascinating. It's a, it's not an experience you could buy on Redbubble. Yeah, yeah. But, but as a reasonably intelligent, reasonably stable sort of bloke in there experiencing it it's a fascinating experience yeah yeah and and so when did you decide to write the book what i wrote a diary Mm -hmm. so it took me 40 something years of writing to become an author (laughs) (laughs) i've always written um and i wrote a diary while i was there because very early on some of the experience i was having um just i thought the, the one that made me decide i had to start a diary actually was when i went to um cancel my health insurance before I'd been sentenced, mm-hmm. someone had said to me, do that because you don't need it while you're... Yeah. So I went to, I think it was HPA, and said to the lady, I need to cancel my health insurance. And this woman managed to... You know that um, character in, in Monsters, Inc., the slug? With the yeah, glasses? yeah, Roz. Yeah, Roz. Roz She's, yeah. She was Roz. She managed to capitalise every word that she said. Now, why would you want to do that <laughs> like this? And I said, because I think I'm going to prison. And she sat back in her chair. And the hilarious part of it was, it was just a box on a form. There was a box that said involuntary incarceration. Mm. And I don't know what voluntary incarceration is, but involuntary incarceration, involuntary bankruptcy or something else. And so you just tick the box and that was it. They they suspended your health insurance. It was really easy. But I was coming home from that experience. I was like, I've got to write that down so I remember it. And it just started me writing a diary. And so... The diary became the spine of the story because I was writing it while I was while I was in jail, and then I just kept up the writing when I came home about how I felt and getting back into the world, and then you know starting a new relationship, starting a new job, mm. finding my way back in the world, finding like I said before the reason why I'm here and 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 what I'm meant to be on this earth to do. Yeah, yeah. and and you say that you know that kindness was a big thing. Yeah, were you, you were not expecting kindness when you came back into the world and found no. a new job, and you told them up front about everything? Not at all. Yep. I was expecting logic. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if I would have been as kind as as my boss was, um, and 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 the, I hadn't told them when I took the job because my dad said to me that I was cutting off my nose to spite my face. He said, "I wouldn't." He said to me, "I wouldn't hire you." Because all I know about you is who you are, where you live, and that you used to be in prison. Sure. So, of course, I wouldn't hire you. So, if they don't ask you in your next interview, don't tell them and work with them for a month and then tell them because yeah. by then they know whether or not you're a decent person, which yeah. is what happened in this funeral company. And the day I told them, I told my boss, he went and told the big boss. I got called into the big boss's office and the big boss said to me, so you made a mistake in your past? And I'm like, yeah, I really did. Tell me a little bit about it. So, I told him and he goes, okay. We're going to leave it in your past. And that was it. Yeah. That was the end of the conversation. And that is, that's an overwhelming amount of kindness yeah. and trust and faith. And, um, and yeah, it, it, that, it set me on the path, right? Yeah. So what was, what was the first day at that job like? Um, 
it, it was just overwhelming because I felt like I was starting again. Yeah, you know, sure. Like I felt like I was 20 again. We, yep. I was in a classroom with a mix of the, the funeral industry attracts older people generally. Like right. it, it, it attracts less people in their 20s and more people in their 30s and 40s. Yep. Um, so I wasn't like – I wasn't the grandpa. I wasn't completely out of place. But just – it was that moment where I was consciously I, – I was conscious of exactly how much I didn't know. Yeah, sure. So that first day I was sitting there and, and then I had that little thing looming over my head. I've, I've really got to try here. I've really got to prove myself because in about a month I'm going to tell them this and then I'm going to have to go and find another job mm-hmm. and and then – but at least they'll give me a good rap, you know, and I might start to slowly be able to build up to something yeah. that's worth doing. Um, and when he said that, I was I was ready to say, okay, that's fine, I'll go. I won't make a fuss. And, and I sort of had to stop myself and go, what, what did – my head i'm like what did he just say <laughs> yeah was it was it 2016 that you got that got that job was it a year it was the after? end of 15 end of 15 yeah, oh wow so even sooner than i thought it wasn't yeah. even a year in yeah yeah wow yeah and you've been there for a while now yeah and i met i met the love of my life that year as well mm. who i'm now married to i've got the new job yeah things just slowly started to and not without roller coaster yeah yeah but, of course so I have uh, standard questions that I okay. ask on this podcast. So uh, the first question is, uh, what trait in people do you find the most admirable? Uh, I think there's two. Self-assurance mm. is a big one. Yeah. Because, you know, that little dog Chester's still in my head. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and the ability to say no gracefully yep. is something that I find I'd, I'd love that trait. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I give... That I say yes too quickly. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. Thank you for saying yes to this podcast. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say yes too quickly to this. I, 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 I've learned my lesson. Like uh, you can't, you can't just say yes to everything because then course. you end up letting people down. Yeah. But the ability to just gracefully be able to say, actually, no, I don't think, I don't think I'm right for that. I love um, that. Yeah. And the self assurance. I'm. I, I have faith that it's a ruse in a lot of people. <laughs> That <laughs> they're just faking it till they make yeah, it. Yeah, sure. And yeah. I, I get that a little bit too. But geez, I wish I was better at that. Just not having to um, knock the negative voice out of my head before I can be self assured. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like it's very strong, and and I have some really good ways to manage it now. But it's it's never going to not be there. Yeah. I, yeah, and I think a lot of people experience that. Of course, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you could choose to be born into an environment, so your own environment that you were born into, would you would you change how you were how you were brought into the world? I don't think I would. No. It's a bit like what I said before about I wish that my first marriage hadn't ended the way it had. But if not for that, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. You know, and and there was so much about my early life growing up where I grew up. I grew up right out in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, so there was a farm behind our house. Yeah. And we had a cool childhood. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's your favourite thing about yourself? I thought about I, I thought about this. I have thought about this. And I've, I always find it harder to say the things that I like about myself than the things that I don't. Yeah. But I always try and meet people without judgement is one of the things that I like about myself. Yeah. And the other thing is that I've learned that life's not a competition so I can genuinely be happy for somebody else to be successful with, without going, you know, that, that, you know, that classic artist. How did you get that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah I, I can genuinely be, feel happy you know, when one of my staff gets promoted and they're at the same level as me. I'm genuinely happy for them. I yeah, don't see yeah. this competition. I, that's something that I've, you know, I've worked That's a great quality to I'm have. proud of it, yeah. 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 Um, what's, the, what's something you'd change about yourself? Ooh. <laughs> Um, if I think about something that I, f- I wish I could do better, it, it'd be to shut the fuck up. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have you ever had that feeling where you like, you're at a party or something and you go into the bathroom and you go, just stop fucking talking yeah. for the next five minutes. Yep. Cause nobody cares. Like you've been talking for, you've just told them a 35 minute story about matchbox cars. Yeah. 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 Would you just shut up? You don't need to tell that story. No. You don't need to. <laughs> and I wish I was a better parent. I feel yeah, sure. I, I feel like I um, I spent too long when I came home from jail making up for a perceived thing that I think I had done to him that I never did to him and I and I feel like there was times in there that I would, could have been a better parent rather than an indulgent parent. I just wish I could. Yeah, yeah sure. Mm. Uh, there's two questions that I didn't um, send to you, but um, 
one of them is, and if, if nothing, if you don't have an answer for it, that's totally fine. When are you at your happiest? Um, when I am with people I love and when I have an absolute finite time on my own. Love being on my own. Yeah, sure. If I know it's going to finish at five o'clock. <laughs> yeah. I hate being on my own if I don't know when the next thing is. Yeah, of course. You know? yeah. I love being with people. I, love. I love my wife. I, I, you know, I have a, a physical and emotional reaction every time I see her that is just joy. Yeah. And, and, I, and, and I think the time that, that like she works on a weekend, so I get one day every weekend where she's not at home during the day, I think that's blessed as well. Yeah. When, when are you your lowest? When I allow myself to believe that I'm an imposter, yeah, sure, um, and then and then the, it just all cycles. If I if I allow myself to fall into that trap and wallow in it, that's when I'm at my lowest. Yeah. Um, who had the greatest influence on you? I mean, you spoke about your dad before. Oh, without doubt, my yep. dad. Without doubt, yeah. He he, um, yeah. The admiration I have for that man, it will be long lived. Yep. Yep. I love that. Uh, if you could pinpoint a moment in your life that had the greatest impact on you, what would that be? You'd think it'd be going to jail, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not. No. Um, I had a, a horrible moment of self-doubt when I had been dating my now wife for about six months. Mm-hmm. I was driving home from somewhere and I just suddenly realised that I was going to destroy her life. It was going to end in tears because that's what I'd done with every relationship that I'd ever had. I was worthless I, had, I saw no reason why she should like me because I didn't like myself. I hated myself, actually. Mm. And so I picked her up that night and we went somewhere and I picked a fight with her. Like, I really picked a fight with her mm. about something stupid on Instagram. But, geez, I picked a fight with her. Yeah. And then I told her we were breaking up. And, and what she said, and she would tell you that she certainly wasn't this calm. And she wasn't. But what she said was, that's okay. I can survive you. So if you want to break up, that's all right, I'll grab an Uber and I'll go home. But you're my friend and you're in pain and I don't like leaving friends in pain. So what I want to do is I want to stay with you and sit with you until you're ready to talk and then we'll talk and then if you still want me to go home, I will. And it was it was 24 hours of horrible with me just telling her how much I hated myself and all yeah. of the stories and everything dark and hot, yuck that I'd ever thought it was ever in my heart. Yeah. I think I told her that I was mean to my sister in 1979 because I wouldn't let her play with my Star Wars toys. And right back to there, right? It was dreadful. And um, she just listened with such compassion and didn't try and make me feel better and just let it all spill out of me yeah. and slowly started to convince me that it wasn't – she didn't love me despite that. She loved me because of all of that. Yeah. It was all of these flaws and we all have them. And, and, and it changed our relationship at that time from what it was to what it is now. And, yeah, that was a very profound. Yeah. I, I had never been offered love like that. That's amazing. When you spoke about kindness before as well, that's a beautiful mm. thing to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, what gets you going every day? Do you have big ambitions? You know, what, what gets you up every day? I don't. I don't mm. have big ambitions. My... My purpose in life is to be of service. And so whether that is that I'm being of service to my, my team that work for me or whether I'm, I'm meeting with a family who's just lost a loved one and I'm being mm. of service to them or whether it's that you know my parents-in-law whose first language is Spanish who, who live with us, whether I'm helping them pen an email so that they can send something back that sounds right to, to somebody. Yeah. I am at my happiest when I'm being of service to when I'm giving to, to and being of service to someone else. And yeah. It's not a big ambition, um, but it makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how do you feel now with, with life and everything and everything that you're doing now? Do you feel good? Yeah, I feel super fortunate. Mm. I, I, I try and stop and um, realise the, the um, and be grateful for it. Yep. I try and stop and do that because, you know, things could have turned out so different. Yeah. It, it would have been so easy when I came home from jail. I knew people from jail and I knew they'd give me a job. Yeah. But but I also knew that that would mean that I would end up in that life. Yeah. Because those jobs wouldn't have been, you know, life could have gone so differently. Yeah. The argument with my wife could have gone so differently that night and and 
who knows where I've been now? You know, yeah. statistically, as Tim Minchin said, it's unlikely that there's only one person in the world who's absolutely perfect for you and you yep. would have found someone else that was completely adequate. Yeah. But I'm very happy I didn't end up with adequate. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm very happy I ended up with flawed and perfect. That's beautiful. Uh, if people want to find your book, where do yep. people find that? Um, look, the best two places to find it are to look up the publisher, which is badapplepress.com.au. You can buy it directly from them. It's also on Amazon as an e-book or an electronic uh, or an audio book. Yep. Um, and I read the audio book. So if you want to, if you haven't heard enough of my voice by now, you're <laughs> more than welcome. But they're the best places. So Amazon for the e-book or the, or the audio book and Bad Apple Press for a hard copy. Yeah, amazing. Will Patterson, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Nature or Nurture for this week. My name is Sammy Peterson and you can follow me, SamPeterson91 on Instagram. I also have a comedy podcast called Confessions. You can find that. The handles are Confessions, the podcast on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. You can also just search it on your regular podcast apps. Please do rate this podcast Uh, I would love that. It helps get the podcast out there to so many people. Thank you to the wonderful Michelle Laurie and Matthew Tankard. They're, They're great producers and I couldn't do this without them. Please do share this podcast around. I'd love to get it out there to as many people as possible. So please do share it with a friend and tell the person that you just heard on this podcast that you really enjoyed hearing their chat. Thank you so much. Hope you have a good week and I will talk to you very, very soon. Goodbye. 